Chapter 15, as you know, is um, the account uh, primarily of the uh, Jerusalem Council. We're in the fall of A.D. 49, and we pretty much uh, finished it last week. Um, I just want to make sure, I don't want to pick up with verse 36, but if there are any questions about the Jerusalem Council, it's, it's probably one of the most important chapters really in the whole New Testament, but certainly in the book of Acts. Uh, in some ways, in some ways the, the, the doctrine of the book of Acts turns on chapter 15. It really does. It's kind of one of those hinge-type chapters because the rest of the book is uh, uh, primarily Paul and Silas and Luke, uh, others who joined them, Timothy and others, uh, in the missionary journeys as they're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, there are occasional mentioning of Jewish uh, people of the diaspora, but for the most part now it's Gentiles. And it's the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? And as you know, the Jerusalem Council settled that once and for all. So are there any questions about that? I didn't get any of your thought papers this week, so I was a little concerned that you didn't either hear the assignment or didn't do it because you didn't understand it. So I, I'm being facetious, but... Uh, one of these days, every now and then, somebody in the class does do a thought paper. It, they do do it. I won't tell you who they are because I won't embarrass you, but I appreciate that. Well, not hearing any questions, I want to start then. I'd like to pick up with verse 36. Um, Paul, and, um, Paul and Barnabas had gone back to Antioch and had, along with uh, the two individuals that had been chosen, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas, and delivered the letter to the uh, to the people at Antioch, and and then it went to other churches in the in that whole region. So they're back now in Antioch. So in verse thirty six we read, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are." Now, just a reminder that shouldn't be difficult for you to figure out. He's talking about revisiting the churches they planted in uh, their first missionary journey. And so um, that Paul has this concern, and you'll see that uh, a little later uh, in some of the, the churches like the Thessalonican church and others. He has a concern about how they are doing because he plants a church, disciples a group of elders, then moves on. That's his strategy. And so he maintains contact with a lot of these churches, and many of those churches he wrote letters to it, and some of those letters end up in Scripture. And so you just see this, this sensitivity, you want to see how they're doing, um, because the intensity of planning a church, growing a church, discipling leaders, and then letting the leaders take it from there, you're always concerned, how are they doing? Are they staying on track? And that's kind of what this is all about. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John Mark. John called Mark. This is this is Mark, who will be the author of the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. He'll be the author of the second gospel. We had come across him earlier, as you might remember, at least I hope you remember, uh, back in chapter 12. What happened to John Mark in chapter 12? He, he left them. He abandoned them. The text back in chapter 12 and even here doesn't tell us why. It doesn't, it doesn't explain why he left them, but it left kind of, uh, uh, well, my mother used to say, a poor taste in Paul's mouth. <laughs> I mean, it was the kind of thing that he didn't forget that. And so he says, uh, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
this is verse 38, but Paul thought it best, that's a very difficult word to translate. It, it's just the only time it appears in the New Testament, translated best. Worthy, thoughtful. So this isn't, this, from, from Paul's perspective, it isn't wise to take John Mark with us. That's what the word best there. It's, it's, it's a word of wisdom. It's a word of discernment. This, that's not a good idea, Barnabas. I know he's related to you. I know you know him, but I'm, I'm really not interested. And he goes on, he had left us in Pamphylia and then had, had not gone with them to the work. So John Mark is kind of a, a difficult, at this point, difficult for Paul to continue to accept him in the leadership team. He's younger. Uh, maybe he backed out for personal reasons. I couldn't, can't take this. It's too difficult. We just don't know. So it causes a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Does he show up again? Yes. He does. Yes. Yes. I know that, but I don't. Yeah. Well, no, that's all right. I mean, that's, there are a lot of these figures that can come in and out of the of the narrative here. He will, uh, if you want to even use the word, be reconciled with Paul, and that will he will be. Um, used by Paul. He'll be a key individual in Paul's life, near the end of his life, actually, but absolutely. Trying to help spread the Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the mark that ended up in Africa, right? That's the tradition. That's tradition. It's not, you know, in the Bible, not in canonical scriptures, but that's part of the tradition that that's where Mark went. Mm -hmm. I see no reason to disagree with that because a lot of the extra-biblical material we have on where the apostles go um, is not recorded in, in the New Testament. He's giving credit for the Coptic Christians. Yeah, they, they claim him, yes. And uh, he also, if you've ever been to Venice, uh, you know that Mark was the patron saint of Venice, and there's a big statue of him there, and uh, a big, big column of him, and it's called St. Mark's Square. Uh, the big church, there's an Eastern Orthodox church, is named after him. So he's kind of claimed by a lot of folks. <laughs> and when would he have written his gospel? That's a good question. Mark's, Mark's gospel, now there is a little disagreement with this, but most agree that Mark was the first gospel written. So it's early. Uh, probably early 50s. Probably early 50s. So. In relationship to this event? When, would that have been before or after? It would be it would be not very long after that, after this event. That's a good question. Verse thirty nine, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now, if you know, we've looked at several of the maps in the packet. Cyprus is a lot, rather large island in the eastern Mediterranean. That Barnabas is from Cyprus. That's his home. And uh, so they go that way. And then Paul, verse 40, Paul those uh, chose Silas and departed, um, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's, Cilicia is part of the area where they had been before in uh, the first missionary journey. So, I mean, in a sense, uh, what you have here is a disagreement between two leaders over an issue, and the ministry's doubled. 
right? So in the sovereignty and providence of God, a disagreement between two individuals, two leaders, leads to a doubling of the ministry. Barnabas and, and, uh, and Mark go one way, and Paul and Silas go the other way. And so um, I'm not sure there. I'm not sure there's a ab, an absolute principle there, but I think we can say this: God will often use disagreements to accomplish His work, and often doubling His work. Now, again, that doesn't mean we should fight a lot and disagree a lot so that God can double. That's not, <laughs> that's an illogical conclusion to draw. But at the same time, it means that God's providence and God's sovereignty can take disagreement and use it for his ultimate glory, for good things, good ends, uh, good results. And that certainly is the case here. Do you agree with that? I mean, is that a legitimate conclusion for us to draw from this? I, I think we would want to say it is. Yeah, sure. It's kind of funny, and it's a little bit of trivia, but in AA, uh, to, to say all oh, you need to start a new meeting is a, is a resentment in another coffee, coffee maker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Okay, that's a... So, in other words, that takes the message to the other something Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but don't you have to qualify that, though? I mean, it's, it, the Lord may do that, but it doesn't always. No, not always. I mean, no. I mean, here in Omaha, many, many, many years ago, the Omaha Gospel Tabernacle no. had a huge disagreement. And mm-hmm. out of that came um, two big, two now big prominent mm-hmm. churches. But mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other churches where there have been disagreements that have had not such. <clears throat> Positive. And splits and so on that are not positive. You know, I mean, that's that's a good qualifier. That's probably the word. I can't remember if I used the word may, but I should have if I didn't. It God may choose to do that, but uh, it, it, that's why I wouldn't want to make it an absolute principle that God always does it that way. Because sometimes disagreements are so bitter and, and, and become so personal that it actually results in deep sin, which then God cannot use. I mean, uh, generally speaking, he will not do that. You said some kind of Yeah, did I say, okay, thank you for rescuing me. <laughs> Is there anything written that kind of gets into what they were arguing about? Was it, was it how they were teaching people? or, were there, what, or, or Well, the disagreement is overtaking John Mark. That's, that's all it was. It wasn't anything. It wasn't about the gospel. It wasn't about what they were teaching. It wasn't the content of what they were teaching. It was just over the person of John Mark or Marcus. But didn't John Mark have a disagreement at one time when he left? Well, back in chapter 12 uh, here in, there in Pamphylia, that region, and that's when he left. But the, the text back there doesn't think it's verse 12. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why he leaves. But, I mean, the way Paul is putting it here in verse 38, isn't it? Yeah, verse 38. For whatever the reasons were that caused John Mark uh, to leave them in the first missionary journey, Paul is reaching the conclusion he's not dependable. He's not reliable. I don't want to take someone like that along again. I want someone that I know is going to hang in there with us and stick to because it's difficult. I mean, you remember the first missionary, just difficult. Lystra was a terrible city for them to be in. 
terrible opposition in, in others that we mentioned too. So, I mean, uh, Ed, that's, uh, that's the thing. We don't really know that the exact reason, but I think it probably boils down from Paul's perspective. It boils down to, I don't want to take someone along who left us earlier. I want to have someone that's dependable, that we can rely on. So for Paul, and that's why that, that Greek term that's translated in ESV, which is what I'm reading from, translates it best. It's a very, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. So it's hard to know exactly how do we, how do we catch the sense of what he's saying. And so, again, I, I did a little research on that. It's, it's, it's probably a conclusion from Paul's perspective of wisdom. It's not wise for us. It's not an issue of sin versus not sinning. It's an issue of it just doesn't seem to me to be wise. And Barnabas, of course, it's his, it's his cousin. I, I think that's the relationship. Mark is his cousin. And so he's looking at him as a relative. I see his potential. I want to take him along. I think I can grow him through this. And Paul says, nope, I'm not going to agree with that. Could be their focus. Oh, sorry. Well, it's, it, uh, well, I was just going to say the NIV says Paul did not think it wise. Okay, good. They're catching the, yeah, good. Says not good. Not good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just he. It's not a matter of sin. It's just I just don't think it's wise for us to take him along. No. Um, could we say um, that if we can object with brothers in Christ, uh, as long as we honestly, in our heart and spirit, truly respect and love that person, and maybe that's one of the criteria. Do and is this putting us at loggerheads in the sense of I don't care for that person, I don't like that person anymore, I'm writing them off versus I respect them, I love them, I care about them, but I, do, I don't agree with them and, and avoid sin of, um, of disliking another brother of Christ. Yeah, I I think um, I used to tell my students, of all people, Christians should be able to show the world how to disagree. That we're going to disagree is given. I mean, we're fallible human beings. We're you know we're going to see things differently and so on. It's like a husband and wife. When I used to do, I haven't I haven't done too many of those recently, but I did a lot of weddings, and a lot of the weddings I did were students of mine and so on. But in the premarital counseling, I just had about eight sessions with them. One of them was, how do you deal with conflict in your relationship? Because particularly young, you know, they just can't envision ever having major disagreements, you know, ever really having difficulties. And then they start living together and start to say, oh, my goodness, what did I do? This guy never picks up his underwear. He never puts the cap on the toothpaste. He never puts the toilet seat down. He never, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why did I marry him? And so those little seemingly innocuous issues become terribly difficult issues in a relationship. And so it's how do you, how do you learn, how do you develop those skills, how do you develop those strategies to disagree? Still, because you're going to disagree. And still love them. And that's what I mean. And still, so it's like, I think you were saying among Christian brothers or sisters or whatever, but you have a disagreement. Can you still love and respect and honor that person until disagree? I think often, if it's, 
if it's done <laughs> in an honorable way, disagreements can help you see other sides of an issue that you don't necessarily, if you just, if, I mean, the Proverbs say this all over the place. You are a fool if you don't seek the counsel of people. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but you're a fool. If you don't seek the counsel of people, in the counsel of many, there's much wisdom, the Proverbs say. So that's part of, that means somebody may point out something that's going to make you kind of angry. Or you become defensive. I mean, it's all of those things that are just part of our emotions uh, as human beings. But it's how to leverage all of those things in a very positive way. And that, that takes great skill. That really does. That was one of the things about, well, again, I don't want to, this isn't political, it's just personal. It's just his person. That was one of the things that Meacham points out in Bush, in that biography of George H.W. Bush. He, he gathered around him very wise people, and he accepted criticism as, as a positive in the sense that there's something maybe they're seeing about what I'm doing or what I'm thinking about doing or about me that I do need to really consider it. Instead of just becoming extremely defensive and lashing out and, 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 and you know, humiliating people just because they disagree with you. And so, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of skill of a servant leader. And uh, so, anyway, that was a long response. Glenn, you, you had something uh, a while, a minute ago. Back in chapter 13, when John Mark went to Jerusalem, where they departed for the first journey. So, could part of it be just perspective that, that Paul was really wanting to focus on right. the I, I don't know. It could be. I, I just don't know. We don't have enough information, Glenn, to reach you know, kind of a definitive conclusion. It could be that. I, I just don't know. I, I don't want to say that's probably it because I just don't think we have enough of insight from the scriptures to really what the, the exact source of the disagreement was. Then you read just, um, uh, well, I guess we already finished that. They go the separate ways, and, and that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of it. Now, if you're interested, as chapter 16, um, I'm, I'm not going to, those those early chapter or those early verses, you got a lot of place names, and we'll highlight those. But I'm interested in looking at the first five verses for one purpose. Timothy comes on the scene, and Paul does something with Timothy that might surprise you. We need to ask why does he do this? Paul also came to Derby and Lystra, and again if. And if you're following one of the maps, they were two of the cities they had visited in the first missionary journey. But in Lystra, there was a young disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we learn her name was Eunice, and he had a grandmother named Lois. <clears throat> they were believers, but his father was a Greek. And usually in, in the book of Acts, that means he's a non-believer. Okay? He was spoken of well by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now that's, that's again, that's, it's an interesting development. Because another young man named John Mark, he did not want to take along for reasons that are unclear. What did he know about Timothy? Well, it says that they spoke well of him. 
in these communities. It is possible, you got to go back to Acts 14, but uh, when Paul was stoned in Lystra, dragged out of the town, left for for dead, it says a group of the disciples rescued him. And some suggest because Timothy was a disciple. He was a convert. His mom had led him to the Lord, and he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He may have been one of those that rescued Paul, and you know, because he had been left for dead. We don't know that, but the connections between Paul and Timothy, the Bible doesn't tell us. It always frustrates me. I just think, well, Luke, why didn't you tell us more about this so we can reach some conclusions? I have to wait till we get to heaven. But whatever it is, whatever, whether he saw the potential in Timothy, whether he had known him a little bit, or he's just distrusting what other leaders are saying, he says, I want you to go with me on this journey. Which, I mean, that's an extraordinary assignment. That, that's a, to tap this young, this young man, he is, he is chronologically young. Uh, he's the son of a mixed marriage, a Jewish believer who's come to faith in Christ, and a Greek who is a non-believer. So, I mean, his, the whole home he comes out of, but whatever it is, he, he just he, he wants him to go along. And then he does something. Okay, you with me, Sal? Yeah, Woody. I was just going to suggest that, you know, we've all met people that are real enthusiastic about the Word, and, and uh, sometimes we refer to them as they're on fire for the Lord and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm. And it's possible that Timothy had all that enthusiasm that maybe uh, was refreshing to him, and he wanted somebody with it. You know? That's that's true, but as Paul says in Romans ten, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Do you understand that sentence? Do you understand? What, I mean, zeal without knowledge and content and and maturity is not. That's not usually a good combination because the zeal is going to burn out quickly, very quickly. I remember this is years ago. This is probably 25 years ago, uh, maybe even maybe a little less. But it was a student, and he was really a neat guy, but he was a young Christian. He had just come to know the Lord about eight months earlier. Uh, a lot had happened in his life, and he really wanted to— uh, he wanted to really prepare for, for ministry and service. And so we accepted him. It was really extraordinary that we did, but we did. And we always had an annual missions conference where we brought in people from all over the world to challenge these young men and women to think globally about their faith and so on. And so uh, this, this young guy was so charged up by the third day of the conference, he made the decision I'm going to sell everything, and I'm going to Alaska, and I'm going to, go to camp up there. I want to minister to the to the Eskimos up there. And one of the speakers had come from that area. And so he sold everything, gave what he couldn't sell to the Open Door Mission, and got on a plane and flew up there and said, okay, I'm here. What do you think the director of that mission said when, when he showed up? Uh, who are you? Uh you know, what, I don't know anything about it. Do you have a resume? And, 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 of course, none of that. He just was so zealous and so on fire, but he wasn't equipped. He wasn't prepared. He'd never been in a kind of, So he came back. Uh, it was about three months. I mean, he never finished a semester of work, but he came back with his tail between his legs. Isn't that the saying? That's the saying. 
And I remember having a pretty long, long conversation with him. And I just, you know, he learned so much about himself through that failure. And, and, and it was a failure, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't in any way a terminal kind of, this is the end, I'm done, I'll never, no. But he, he really grew through that. I mean, he, he, lost, he lost a semester of work. He not only lost academic credit, he lost money and all of that. But um, he, he reoriented his thinking, and uh, a number of us came alongside and kind of helped him to, let's work through this and see this as a positive in your life. And it really was. But that's why I don't, Woody, I don't think that's what Paul is, is doing. It's not just zeal. It's probably zeal. But he's been mentored. He's mature. He, he, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy was discipled by his mother and his grandmother. And they, they spent a lot of time with him. What else we know, we don't know. So it's just fascinating, but he makes a dis- he now, Paul, makes a decision to do something. In the middle of verse 4, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What places? The places of the first missionary journey. They're just getting started. And you might remember in Pisidian Antioch, there was a very large group. In Iconium, there was a very large group of Jews. So what's Paul doing? Paul, using pragmatic wisdom, wants to neutralize the issue that the Jews would bring up. He's Greek. He's not circumcised. How dare you let this guy into our synagogue with you to preach about this Christ? You follow me? Paul wants to neutralize that issue. It doesn't mean that circumcision, because it takes us back. I'm I'm just anticipating uh, one or two of you that are really thinking, you're going to say, wait a minute. He had just, we'd just been through the Jerusalem Council where they said the circumcision doesn't mean anything. So why in the world is Paul circumcising him? Answer, it tells it, because of the Jews who were in those places. They knew his dad was a Greek. So they're just saying, wait a minute, how could you bring an uncircumcised guy into our synagogue with you to tell us, that Paul says, I want to neutralize that issue. I don't want it to be an issue. So the best thing to do is circumcise him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, To the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Greek, I'm a Greek. I become all things to all men that I might win some. So Paul tries to understand the audience into which he is going to proclaim the gospel. What are the issues for them? To the best of my ability, I want to, I want to understand it. I want to neutralize issues that are important to them so that I can tell them about Christ. Well, with the Jews... An uncircumcised Greek is terribly offensive to them. And so he says, okay, I'll make it a non-issue. I'll circumcise him. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders that were in Jerusalem. Now here's where I'm going to take advantage of this magnanimous, gracious provision of a board. The word decision... is dogmata. Does that look familiar? Dogma. 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 Which today, uh, 
is often a pretty negative term, but it's it's actually a positive term in in um, in theology because when you use the word dogma of theology, you're talking about an agreed upon theological proposition. And so that's that's, that's certainly is how Paul is using it here. The decisions, it isn't just a you know, superficial decision. This is the dogma. This is what we've agreed on. This is a doctrine of what came out of the Jerusalem Council. So that's why, uh, to me, that is, a, and so I, thank you, Woody, I, but I was going to write it up anyway, but now I've satisfied your, your important, uh, right. it yeah. It a lot to me, too, because I found the marker. Oh, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we want to affirm Jim and Fred. Yes. And, and Woody is looking out for both of them. So. Yeah, there you go. But anyway, that is an important term, just to see the term that we translate is, is a much more intense word than you can perhaps communicate in, in English. So the result is the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So the churches that he's visiting in these areas where he had preached and, and planted churches in the first missionary journey, they're growing. They're being strengthened. And that's what Paul wanted to see. So that, that's it. Now, now, now what happens is Luke wants to set us up to understand why does Paul go to Macedonia and Greece? Because that was not his original intent. And so verse 6 through verse 10, we see God's Spirit leading them to go to what will be Philippi and begin the invasion of Europe, the gospel, in other words, invading Europe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it says when the churches were strengthened, Mm -hmm. was that as a result of just the ministry of Paul, or was that because he brought the wisdom of the Jerusalem Council that settled issues that were preventing the church from growing? That's a great question. I I would assume the way Luke has put it, it's both and. They would have been encouraged and strengthened by the decision of the Jerusalem Council. That would have affirmed uh, what Paul had preached and what they were preaching, because that is what they were preaching. And they never talked about circumcision, the law of Moses, that kind of thing. But I think just, too, just the presence and preaching uh, of Paul and, and, and Silas and perhaps Timothy as well, that just hearing the word of God and somebody that that uh, communicates the truth that does strengthen you, but I think it's both of those things together strengthen the church, and it's just saying that their numbers increase daily. Luke doesn't give us the the numbers, the statistics. I mean, the, the raw numbers, but it's just another way of saying the churches are strengthened and they're growing. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ. This, this seems like uh, what Jim brought up was uh, something that's, that's kind of hidden there in a way, but it's bedrock important because it's what we're talking about. How do we grow the churches of America today and strengthen the faith of all? And, uh, and what we're saying is that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the book hadn't all these books hadn't been written, the right. New Testament. Right. So today, how how do we go about that? Because you've alluded to that in prior comments. Well, I mean 
there are layers there to your question. I mean, I mean, obviously, the most important, the most important way to grow your church through conversions is to to talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your church should do that. Your your pastor should be encouraging us to do that. I mean, all of those kinds of things. But then, so, I mean, that the increasing numbers daily. That means people are being converted into the faith. They are coming to know Jesus Christ and responding in faith to it. But the the word strengthen, and which relates to Jim's question, strengthening. It's a military term in Greek. It, there's a deepening, there's a deepening uh, set of convictions, a, a, and the result is a much stronger faith, a much stronger and, and more uh, intentional faith, because you've learned more and more about who God is, more and more about how trustworthy he is, more and more about that he keeps his promises. I every day I in my inbox when I wake up in the morning, I get a little devotional for Swindoll. It's you know, it's like you can sign up for thousands of those. I think every minister has his own little devotional. But I love Swindoll, so I, I signed up for his. Last week, I forget what day it was, he had one of those little devotionals, only about two, three paragraphs. It just I, it was such an encouragement to me. But he said something that I've never seen before. In the Bible, God has made over 7,000 promises. Now, they're not all promises that are applicable to you and me. I mean, like he promises Hannah a son, Samuel. He promises Sarah a son, you know, Isaac. You know, they're, they're prom- but they're promises. But I don't know where he got, I'm, I'm sure he didn't go through the Bible and count them himself. It, some other theologians had done that. But just, I thought, I thought about that all week. And where I was this weekend, I talked a little bit about it. And so I'm going to bring it up here again. Just think of that. If God made seven over 7,000 promises throughout the Scriptures, can you examine those and answer this question? Does God keep his promises? To me, that's a really important question. I mean, anybody can make a promise. The, 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 real, the really important point is did you keep that promise? And the answer is, of course, yes. God keeps his word. To me, that's really important. And to me, that's one of the ways to strengthen people's faith. My God has made a lot of promises to me. I've come into a relationship with him by putting my faith in his son. I believe that he was, his death, burial, and resurrection is for me. I believe he died for me. Okay, now you've begun a relationship with him. And you learn he's your heavenly father, and you learn he's made a lot of promises to you. He's going to come back for you, going to give you a brand new body. You're going to rule and reign with his son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can just go on and just listen. Do you have any confidence that he's going to keep those promises? Well, there are 357 promises, prophecies made about the first advent of his son. Were all of those fulfilled? Absolutely. He promised his son that he would raise him from the dead. Psalm 22, Psalm 16. Did he? Yes. He promised that his son, because he went to the cross and died for the humanity as an atoning death, would sit at his right hand. Did he? Yes. I mean, it's just that's the way you start to think about it. So that strengthens me. It strengthens my faith that my God is trustworthy and my God keeps his word. 
And so, I mean, they're the kinds of things, I have no idea, but they're the kind of things that I think would have been involved in what Paul, in round two of visiting these folks, would have been saying, those kinds of things. Verse 6, and they went through the region. Now, again, in the, if you want to look at the map, these are regions. Phrygia, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Again, that's another province. And when they came to Mycenae, and now Mycenae is more on the western end of Anatolia, or what today you and I would call Turkey, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is to the north. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they kind of go through the north, they came to Troas. And if you look on your map, Troas is right on the edge of Anatolia, Turkey. It's a city. It's not, by the way, it's not that far from Troy of the Iliad Odyssey, you know, fame and all that. It really isn't that far from Troy. Well, anyway, so there are Troas. So all, all Luke is doing, and it's kind of frustrating because it does, he doesn't explain what this means. Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow. How did that happen? It doesn't tell us. He doesn't explain it to us. All he's saying is, the Holy Spirit is guiding them, directing them where they're going to go. So now they're in Troas. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Philip in, uh, sorry, to Paul in the night. This is a vision, a dream. And a man of Macedonia. Now Macedonia, um, you know, again, I'm just, I, I, I love maps, I love geography, so I'm going to tell you. Here there are Troas. Macedonia's over here. It's the northern part of what today you and I kind of call Greece. Who came from Macedonia? Who's the most famous person from Macedonia in history? You know, you just don't know you know. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was from Macedonia. And the city they're going to go to is Philippi, and Philippi is named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon. Now, I'm saying all that because this is an extraordinary, an extraordinary, almost shocking directive through this vision. And Paul, when he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Did you note a change in pronouns in verse 10? We. Luke has joined them here. The sense is, not the sense, there's no doubt, Luke has joined them. There is a sense in biblical scholarship that Luke is from this area. Luke's a Greek. He is not a Jew. He's a Greek. He's a doctor. And so we, we do not know the circumstances about this. We do not know the details. We don't know how Luke and Paul connected. We don't know why Paul asked. We don't know all that. It's just now Luke's on the team, which, again, is really, really frustrating. Now, just a minute, Luke. You're writing this. Why don't you insert two or three sentences to explain to us how you came to know Paul, how you came to know Christ, why you and of all things join these guys? Huh? I'd be kind of talking about him. But I'm, I'm just frustrating to me. Put a little bracket. It's not a self-elevating comment. I just want you to understand. You know what? Anyway. Uh, since you mentioned it, uh, Alexander the Great's peak time of history was 
Well, Alexander the Great dies in 323 B.C. He begins the conquest of the world about seven years earlier. His father was assassinated. He takes up the mantle of the Macedonians, unites all the Greek city-states at the Battle of Charonia, and then heads east. And it's, 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 it's an ex- and this is what his dad went, it's an expedition of revenge. Because what had the Persian Empire done in the 400s? Had invaded Greece. Remember, you remember the Battle of Thermopylae? You remember those stories, a tremendous story uh, of history. Uh, and then the, the, battle, the naval battle of Salamis. The, uh, well, anyway, some of that you don't maybe know. But it's just tremendous stories. Of her, of her, these are the heroic stories of Greece. When they, when they defended the homeland against the, against the Persians, the Persians had laid low the Greek cities. I mean, they destroyed them. They destroyed Athens. And so Alexander the Great, following on his dad's heels, is going to get revenge, and he will conquer the Persian Empire in a few years. He will chase Darius, the emperor of the Persians. He'll chase Darius all around the mountains until he finds him and kills him. And so he become, and he goes all the way to the east. He's, he's on the border of the Ganges River. And his soldiers say, we're not going any further. We are not going to go any further. So he works his way back and settles in Babylonia, and there he dies of malaria in 323 B.C. So this is about you know, roughly 300 years later. But the, this area would have remained very... very yeah, th- this was a... This was that, that there's a tremendous amount of pride. As a matter of fact, it, maybe you didn't notice this, but uh, in, in the news, this would have been a couple of months ago, there was a major election in this area. And the election was they, they've, they've seceded from Greece and they're their own country. And the election was already going to call ourselves. And the Greeks would not allow them to call themselves Macedonia. They have to be called North Macedonia because there's another part of Macedonia that's still in Greece. So, I mean, those, those sentiments are still there thousands, a couple thousand years later. There's a strong difference between the Macedonians and the Greeks. And they are ethnically different. Well, I'm telling you more than you're, you're probably interested in. But, the, but the, kind of what you had said earlier, this, this would not have been like, hey, this is a great person. No, no, they would not. This was not his intent. When he set out, you know, earlier in chapter 15 after the Jerusalem Council, his intent was not to go to Greece or Macedonia or anywhere except let's go visit the guys in, in Galatia where we planted those churches. So setting sail from Troas, verse 11, setting sail from, we made a direct voyage through Samothrace. And if you're looking at your uh, map, Samothrace is an island. And following to Neapolis, Neapolis, Neapolis is a Greek city, new city. Paulus' city, Nia's new, new city, it's a port, and then came to Philippi. And you can see where Philippi is. That's named after Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's dad. Philippi, I'm going to tell you a bit about Philippi. Philippi is a very important city. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I have one of those maps. No, I don't. But, um, it was along what was called the Ignatian Way, which was a major east-west road system. Anyway, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a colony where military officers retired. It was a free city. It was tax-exempt. And the people that lived in Philippi were very proud of, of their heritage. 
because Rome had looked with favor. This has all been conquered by Rome many, many years earlier. Though it's a very important part of the Roman Empire. It's, it's a Roman military-free city. A military officer would retire there. And so there's a strong sense, because they are a free city, of citizenship, of being a part of that city. And uh, they were exempt from taxes, which would have been a pretty nice place to live. So Philippi, and it's because Minneapolis is all about nine miles away, it's right near a port. I mean, so Philippi is prosperous. It's a key city. It's strategic. It's right on the Ignatian Way, that major road system. So that he chooses to go to Philippi. It doesn't say the Spirit directed him. He goes to Philippi. That makes a lot of sense. It's a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and it is a Roman colony. I've explained what all that means a moment ago. As I suggested a, a few minutes ago, there is some evidence that Luke is from this city. That Luke, this is Luke's hometown, which may be why, we just don't know, it's an inference we're drawing, it may be why Luke joined the missionary journey. We don't know that for sure. I wouldn't pound the table too hard on that one. Philippi? That's correct. Again, that's, there's, some, there's some little shreds of evidence that that might be the case. It's not biblical. Looks like, though, he was over in Troas because we got ready at once to leave. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, I mean, that to go back and forth was not an unusual thing. He's a medical doctor, and they often, what we would call, wrote a circuit. You, you would care for, I mean, medicine in the first century was different than medicine today. We remained in this city for some days. Now, I want you to think, uh, what time is it? Okay. I want you to think with me about something here. Paul does something. He does something that is very intentional. And he goes outside the city, outside the city gate, to the east of Philippi is a river. Like all cities, it's got walls around it. He goes out of the gate, goes to the east, there's a river there. That had been known as a place where women prayed. Whether Paul knew that, whether Luke explained that to him, we don't know, but he says, that's where I'm going to go. So Paul is intentionally going to where a group of women meet. Don't you think that's interesting? That the first first convert in Europe is a woman. Uh, well, I maybe shouldn't be that dogmatic because I don't know that. But the first convert in Paul's ministry is a woman in Europe. Her name is Lydia, a wealthy, influential woman. And so it's just it's fascinating to think of how did they make this decision? Because he's intentionally doing this. And the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. It's the Gangetes River, not that that means anything, east of the city, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. This was a place where women prayed. One who heard of us, one who heard of us, they'd heard of his ministry, heard of what they were preaching, heard about them, 
was a woman named Lydia from Thyatira. Now, on the map, Thyatira is here in Europe. Thyatira is one of the seven cities of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It's one of the seven churches. It was a major city, a wealthy city. It was known for its production of dye. You know, the, you know what I mean? That you would color the cloth with. And this is what Lydia does. She's from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, and a worshiper of God. Three things about her we learn. Luke tells us three things. One, she's from the major city of Thyatira, a major textile center in the ancient world where dyed cloth was made and sold. She's a dealer of purple goods. Where is she getting those goods to sell? From her hometown of Thyatira. She's franchised her business. I made that up, but it, it makes sense. That's probably what she's doing. Because she's in Philippi, a major city along the east-west roadway, the Ignatian Way. It makes sense why she's there. But she's also a worshiper of God. She's a believer. Now what happens? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was baptized, her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia's house is the first house church in Europe. It will be a house church. We're going to hear about it later on in this book. This will become the center of biblical Christianity in Philippi. Where's church on Sunday morning? Lydia's house. That's where we go. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll show you where she is. She's down the street. She's a wealthy woman. She's a seller of textiles. She comes from Thyatira, but she's a believer. And she's opened her palatial home for the church. That's where we have church in Philippi. Oh, good. What time does the service start? Now, remember, we're going to spend most of the day there. You don't get to Denny's after church. We stay there. We spend most of the day. It's how you do church in the first century. I'm making some comments there. I knew a man not, not so long ago. He wasn't my church. It was another church. He always went to the early church service so that they could be one of the first people to get lunch at Denny's. So it was, it was part of their major agenda. You know, early service, Sunday school, then hightail it to Denny's because we want to beat the crowd at Denny's. That was their agenda. Nothing wrong with that. I just thought I'd mention that. So Lydia, it's, it's just interesting that she's the first convert, a woman, an influential woman, presumably a woman of some some clout in the city and she comes to know Christ she's baptized she's now publicly identified with Jesus Christ more than likely in the Gangetes River to the east of the city what does that tell you about Christianity in the first century it's the social leveler you know it's the only bit leveler it everyone is equal in Christ Galatians 3.28, Paul says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slaver. Everybody's equal in Christ. And here, it's just, to me, it is incredibly fascinating that they intentionally go to a place where women of the city pray. And Lydia becomes the key leader. Her house is the first house church. 
I don't know this for sure, but I would assume she probably becomes a pretty key supporter. Because Paul will speak again and again of how generous the Philippian church was in supporting what he was doing. So, oh, I guess... Is better. this an argument for CBWM? <laughs> if you want to make it an argument, I'm with you. Well, people are closing their books, so I guess it's time for me to quit. So uh, I hope you're with me. What we want to look at next week, if you want to read the rest of the chapter, it's a, it's a tremendous chapter. The, the next thing is he, this, this slave girl who's demon-possessed is following him around, and then he gets in trouble and ends up in jail. So he's got two converts. first two are women. Wealthy woman and a slave girl who was, he did an exorcism and cast the demons out gets him in tremendous trouble with the leaders of the city. And then the jailer, who's a Roman, he leads him to Christ. So he's got his church, two women and a man. wonder what the elder board looked like at the church. And, I'm being facetious, but I'm glad some of you are laughing. You got it. All right, I want to pray here. I'm over time. Lord, thank you for the word of God. It's the living pulsating, piercing word of God. It's alive. It's like a two-edged sword, as the book of Hebrews says. And as we read it and study it together each week, I thank you for that inestimable privilege you give to me to lead in the study, but for what you're doing in the hearts of these men. And as you uh, are, are growing them through the word, you're growing them in, in, in coming into a greater knowledge of who you are, what you're doing in this world, what your priorities are, what your values are, what your standards are, and most importantly, that intimate, viable, vital relationship that they have with you. Grow that in each one of their lives. May they become even more deeply committed to you, be men of God who represent you well to a world that desperately, desperately needs to hear the message of the gospel. So I just commit us to you. I thank you, Lord, for the sunshine today. Thank you that presumably it's going to get above freezing today. And we just appreciate you creating a day like that in the midst of so many days where it's been very very damp, very dreary, snow and ice. It's just lovely to see it like this. So thank you for creating that day for us. So as we're dismissed now, we dismiss with your blessing, and we'll go our separate ways representing you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week. <laughs>